From Innovation Alley at Marquette University, I'm Chuck Swoboda, and this is Innovators on Tap, a show based on the idea that innovation is about leadership. It's a mindset to find a better way, and ultimately, it's about people. These conversations are designed to allow you to open your mind to new ideas and find ways to put those concepts to work. Together, we can solve big problems and maybe even change the world. This season of Innovators on Tap is sponsored by Husco International, a fast-growing, community-oriented company specializing in high-performance hydraulic and electromechanical components. With over 70 years of experience designing and manufacturing these components, Husco takes pride in collaborating with customers to develop innovative solutions. Husco has U.S. locations in Wisconsin and Iowa and global locations in England, Germany, China, and India. A privately owned company that offers more than just a job, a career at Husco is an entrepreneurial experience full of incredible opportunities for growth, creativity, and innovation. Go to husco.com to begin your next adventure and put the lessons you've learned from the podcast to work. Solving big, hairy problems. That's how today's guest, Victor Sherba, describes entrepreneurship. Victor spent much of his career working with some of the largest data management businesses in the world, including SAP and Microsoft. And it was during this time that he saw a customer problem that needed to be solved, which led him to forming his company, Yeti Data, a virtual marketing and data warehouse. But Victor isn't all about data. Throughout his successful career, he learned the value of people, relationships, and collaboration. He said, the magic about working with people is astounding. If you really want to get something done beyond yourself, you have to do it with leverage. Leveraging the amazing skill sets of the people around you is the key. In our conversation, we discuss the necessity of unbridled curiosity as an entrepreneur, why it's important to focus on the problem and not fall in love with a certain solution, and the value of learning how to think, not just what to think. That's what's on tap today. Enjoy. Well, Victor, welcome and thanks for joining me today on Innovators on Tap. Hey, good to be here. So you've said that if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, it would be to be more patient. What do you mean by that? And how do you think others might be able to apply that in their own lives? When I was in my early 20s, I was a hurricane force of energy with no direction. And um, I would say, you know, the process of growing up and maturing was actually learning how to channel a lot of that energy and at least have things kind of kind of go in the same direction. <laughs> and there was a couple of uh, early career moves that I made um, just being a little bit impatient, right? Um, I just didn't think that things were moving fast enough for me. And looking back at it was just, you know, just dumb, you know, young, unbridled energy as opposed to, you know, any brains involved. You know, at one point early on in my career, I didn't get a promotion that I tried to get. And I was still working for HP and I got so frustrated. A friend called in another division and I took that job because like they wanted to give me this job. And I went to work for a division that was slowly dying. We were essentially going through a five-year shutdown of the business. I didn't know it when I said yes. And it was probably one of the worst decisions I made just because I was kind of frustrated. But in hindsight, I probably learned more in that year 
having to work in a really hard business, even though it was within HP, that while it wasn't a very logical choice, it ended up being a valuable one. Do you wonder if some of your impatience actually gave you some experiences that maybe ended up helping out, or were they just simply bad choices? <laughs> actually, you know what? I wouldn't trade any of them because the, the lesson is in context, right? So for example, um, I also made a very rash career choice. Um, I really wanted to be in sales, right? At, at that point, um, because sales was kind of where, you know, the money was at. And um, it was the place where you would go out with meet with more customers and really kind of where the, where the, where the, corporate traction really happened. And I just felt that sitting in a marketing job was just a little bit of a, you know, a tweener job, a little in-between job, <laughs> right? Either make stuff or sell stuff. Um, and all the rest of the roles are kind of tweenish. And so um, we had a policy at, I, I worked for a, a great startup that was founded uh, in part by a Marquette um, alum. Uh, Cypress Semiconductor was founded by Lowell Turf. Uh, fantastic guy. And he had a policy of new people come in and we're just uh, too brash around the edges. So you need to sit around in marketing for three years before you could go on the sales. <laughs> and uh, so um, I got an offer from a, uh, a, a company to be a, uh, a sales guy uh, for them. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is great. And I don't have to move. And I know the space a little bit. Um, this is fantastic. And it turns out that this guy was probably the most unethical person I have ever worked with in my life um, that would lie through his teeth for any advantage at all. And I am very, very grateful that I ran into a person like that very, very early on in my career. And uh, it actually formed a lot of my uh, kind of... Um, core who I am about honesty and um, integrity. But I actually have now that I've um, kind of gone through on the other side of, uh, you know, gone through my whole sales arc, I would actually say that might early on, um, you know, the people that are the salespeople are these aggressive, um, gregarious, um, you know, overconfident kind of folks. But they're also the ones that never actually make it in sales in, in the long run, right? And the people that actually make it in sales are the honest ones, right? Are the honest brokers. And the ones that have put together, men, you know, 10, 20, 30-year careers in sales are the ones that people trust. You know, Victor, you've had a bunch of different roles working inside some very big successful companies. You've been doing consulting, and I know that you've started your own company, Yeti Data, and I want to come back to that. But before we talk about the company, you know, at some point, did you have this plan where you said, look, I'm going to run my own company someday, or did it just evolve? I think um, I had the inkling of potentially my own company late 20s or something like that, right? I saw a very clear progression path getting from a junior sales guy to VP of sales, to run sales, right? For sure. I mean, it was just literally just add more fuel onto this fire and it will, <laughs> this, this, this will get there. <laughs> um, but I also 
also felt in some ways that I was kind of making an intellectual trade-off, right? And, um, and, and I also thought that I could do more than just sales and to really kind of, um, I would say broaden the, um, I don't know, aperture on my camera to, to include more than just a, a vertical shot at sales, uh, VP, I really needed, you know, business, right? So, you know, I was super drawn to getting an MBA. And uh, after my MBA, and I'm getting to the answer to your question, after the MBA is when I'm like, okay, I think I could take a, a crack at building something. When I was running Cree, I was asked to at one point come speak at the uh, Executive MBA Commencement Program for uh, UNC. And I got up and had a chance to speak to them. And I never got any more than my bachelor's in engineering. In fact, when I came to Cree, the deal was uh, the CEO said, don't get an MBA, come here and I'll give you one by living it. And so, and it worked out pretty well. So I'm giving this speech and part of my intro was, well, thank you all for being here. I certainly never thought as an engineer, I'd get to come speak at a business school. But well, the first thing I should probably tell you is, is we have a rule against hiring MBAs. And they all looked at me and they're like, who invited this guy? <laughs> What's he doing here? And what I explained was, is that at one stage in the company, we actually did have the rule, and it wasn't because we didn't want people that were smart or well-educated. Is We actually needed, we needed people who were earlier in their career that they were willing to kind of throw themselves in any direction at any moment. And what we had found is that those that had gone out and gotten their MBA, they were so eager to apply that knowledge and skill set that there was this tension. And so we end up hiring many later on in Cree's growth and it became very essential skill set to have. But I'm always asking people, what do you think you got from your MBA? Is it what you learned in the class? Is it the people you met? What is it that you really got from that experience? Well, I actually don't think it has anything to do with the core knowledge. Today, in the day of uh, YouTube video, you could go in and listen to a top marketing professor tell you about his wonderful experience on how to market high-tech products. That knowledge itself, especially the road knowledge, is, um, I would say, the same in all MBA programs and is actually, I would, in many ways, I would, say very transactional when you kind of change your context and you like literally start marinating in um into the world of possibilities i would say you know i did my mba i was mostly a high-tech guy from you know south bay uh, and I did my MBA at Berkeley and there were guys that were, you know, CFOs at Chevron and there were guys that were doing, you know, um, banking and venture and consulting and uh, construction and, and everything else. Right. And I would say the, the biggest value for me, other than just meeting just super world-class professors and super world-class people that I'm still, you know, very close to these days. I think just having um, that wider perspective of what is business really helped, especially in uh, 
a place like in Silicon Valley where your skill set, you have to go very, very deep on one very specific thing to create your differentiation, uh, to go up to 30,000 feet and, you know, talk about the industry and what are the big moving parts. That's an invaluable skill set forever. It took me a long time to realize how much there was to gain from other people's perspective in unrelated industries. And it ended up becoming one of the most valuable things we ended up doing is borrowing great ideas and sharing them across industry. So I got, I gained that knowledge a different way, but honestly, it was funny when I was, when I was considering getting an MBA, I didn't think that's what I was doing it for, right? I thought I was going for the rote knowledge. And what I found is most people who describe their their experience and almost all of them are positive. It's actually what you describe. It's a, it's really a chance to expand how you think about things and how you see problems and, and then be able to reapply it in a different way. I do have a caveat though. I think if you go and do an MBA before you actually pick up a skill set, you have completely blown it. And I do a, you know a lot of career advising, you know, just through friends, kids, and stuff like that. Um, and I would say that I tell them invariably to learn how to do something very, very well before you consider um, doing an MBA. Your skill, either in technology or in art or in engineering or whatever that is, is what's going to kind of be building your career. And then your MBA allows you to just move horizontally. Right. And just see that bigger breadth of kind of what's out there. So I want to get back to the, the company side of this, Victor. So you claim that your company, Yeti Data, solves big, hairy problems. Can you give us kind of the elevator pitch on what are these problems you're solving and how do you go about solving them? I think if you want to create a company of consequence, um, you got to focus on a big problem, right? I mean, there's lots of big problems out there. Um, I think you start off with something big. You want to find something a little bit that is more um, manageable and kind of bite-sized that you can actually solve with a with a with a small uh, team, a band of pirates, kind of a thing, and then and and then build it back up to something bigger, right? And so uh, the story behind Yeti actually started in Milwaukee and it was uh, in, in Harley Davidson. And uh, we were talking about a certain technology that uh, we, that Harley Davidson had actually misapplied. <laughs> and um, the issue that was going on actually was, was very strange, but it was a, it was an issue of t-shirts um, and their strategy with t-shirts was about licensing um they would literally, anybody would send in a fax to them and say, hey, here's a t-shirt we want to make. And then every time you made one, you send them a buck or whatever was the, was the licensing strategy. And they said, these t-shirts are insanely low quality, <laughs> right? And I think it's time for us to make our own, right? And so what they ended up doing is they ended up kind of opening up their channel for distribution to not just sell the the 2000 dealers worldwide, but they also wanted to sell the high end, you know, apparel shops. So all of a sudden on the IT side of things, things got really super complex. They went from order of magnitude, right? It went from 2000 outlets to 20,000 outlets. And quite frankly, their CMO challenged the team and saying, listen, we've got 
2 million people, right? Some of which actually have our brand tattooed on their body. <laughs> that's how much they love this brand. And we don't even know who they are. And um, so that's where the general idea for uh, Yeti came in is that all of a sudden there's all these disparate data sources about your um, customers. And from the IT perspective, it was super, super hard to kind of put that all together and make it actionable from the marketing point of view. So we decided that we're going to solve that. <laughs> but you were already working with Harley. Is that with in your role in another company and then Yeti data comes in as a separate way to solve the problem? How did that come about? So this, uh, yeah, that was my role at SAP. And I would, I ran the data division at that point. And I'm like, oh my God, this is a big problem, right? And in fact, we went out and I remember three or four other very large consumer brands that we did on that swing through the Midwest um, as part of those uh, trips. And they all had very similar problems, right? These are all, you know, more brand names that, you know, people would recognize. And so I'm like, okay, guys, we need to build this product. So we built a business plan on how we're going to build this product internally. And there was no appetite. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, this thing is just killing me that this is not being solved. We have the capability to solve it. Now, from the um, strategy point of view, I think, um, you know, we made the right decision as, as a corporate entity at SAP. I mean, SAP had a really new technology coming out um, called in-memory computing, a brand name HANA. Um, and the reality is that we had to put as much engineering muscle behind the new product as possible instead of just optimizing a product line, right? Um, and so, but that didn't deter me. I'm like, this is nuts <laughs> that this is not being solved. And so, uh, you know, that's the genesis of solving big, hairy problems. So, Victor, one of the quotes on your website is, not surprisingly, many marketers got obsessed with their data and lost focus on what really matters, their customers. Why do you think people may this most basic point about business? One of those uh, mistakes that we made early on with, with Yeti was we knew that marketing was changing into a data-driven department, right? Before that, it was mostly driven through creatives. And we actually thought that um, the marketers were going to move faster um, into way more of a data-driven kind of world. So we kind of got timing a little bit. Um, we, we were a little bit early on that. But I would say, as this super creative department, all of a sudden was given the ability to get lots and lots of data, um, they actually lost, I would say, sight of the problem that they're solving, right? And they kind of fell in love with the data and, um, and, and, and really didn't tie it necessarily back into the problem that they're solving. So, you know, the, the, the biggest thing I would say that most data is missing is context. So I know that one of your favorite books is How to Win Friends and Influence People. And I think you've said that if you don't understand people, nothing else really matters. 
Do you think you were always someone who understood people or did you learn it along the way? Oh my God. This is the hardest taught lesson <laughs> in my life. <laughs> and definitely something that I learned along the way. <laughs> I mean, I can't even emphasize that enough. I would say, you know, the magic about um, working with people is, is just astounding. I mean, we, we are really, truly remarkable, um, you know, entities, right? And if you really want to get something done kind of beyond yourself, you got to do it with leverage, right? And, and, and really um, leveraging those amazing skill sets of people around you is, um, is, is the key to, to kind of building a, a, a wonderful kind of a, a career. If you take a look at what engineering looks like these days, at least, you know, from the Silicon Valley software point of view, you have developers that are located in India, you have developers that are located in, uh, you know, in Europe, you have salespeople that are located around the world, partners, et cetera, et cetera. And so the ability for you to actually make an impact really depends on being able to, um, kind of win friends and influence people <laughs> in different cultures. And um, it's, it's the, it's call it the Y factor, right? The X factor could be how good at you are you at what you do, right? But if you want to build volume and you want to build scale, then you got to do it by, you know, adding wonderful, awesome, people that challenge you and and you know that's that's your second dimension right and maybe second and third dimension if you're enjoying this episode and want to learn more about how you can discover the mindset to pursue the impossible please check out my new book the innovator's spirit where i explain the beliefs that lead to the behaviors that make innovation possible it is available on amazon or wherever books are sold. Now, let's get back to the show. What I wanna do now is kind of shift gears and get into kind of some questions that are gonna get more into how you specifically think about things, specifically around innovation and entrepreneurship. So first question, do you think your success has come more from avoiding failure or embracing failure? I, I want to reframe it because I don't think that people wake up in the morning and actually think about, oh my God, I, I love failure, <laughs> right? But I could tell you this, I think that this is really kind of a question of um, like knowledge and education. Am I, do I crave this knowledge, even if it is like trying to figure out how to get a promotion <laughs> or how to get this product to market or whatever, or not, right? I think if you pursue at a truly kind of curious and, and you pursue that intellectual um, knowledge, um, you're going to put yourself in a situation where you may or may not fail, right? But, but that's okay. I mean, it's kind of, there's certain lessons that you're going to get the hard way. <laughs> and there are, you know, moments of failure that can be associated with that. 
you know, I would say um, early on in a career, I don't think it's the right thing for people to do to literally pursue, uh, you know, failure <laughs> exhaustively. Um, I think you got to kind of figure out where you can fail and when where you can risk, um, you know, potentially something catastrophic um, while you're pursuing this 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 knowledge. So if you're going to pursue innovation, what's more important from a team dynamic standpoint, the brutal truths or psychological safety? I think it's super important that you actually feel most of the time that you have in a, that you have this psychological safety, <laughs> because if no one's got your back, <laughs> you are burning cycles on. Do I have my bases covered? <laughs> so as a as a leader, I think it's very, very important that you have that brutal honesty for yourself so that you are aware of what is going on and you might want to give people a little bit of insight in kind of what's you know what's going on and and i think the most important question really to get people to get to is the why why are we kind of pursuing this innovation right is this something that you know the company's not going to survive if we don't do it or is this something that really cool or i mean there's there's lots and lots of reasons on why you would want to pursue this thing so you know in summary as a leader i think it's super important for you to be you know concretely um i would say rooted to the facts <laughs> including that brutal honesty but i also think that it's super important for um, you as a leader um, to go in and create that safety for people to innovate. And, and if you ask me kind of what is the magic of Silicon Valley in general, is that we literally democratized this psychological safety to innovate, right? Ah, yeah, that didn't work, whatever. I'm gonna park my car in the same parking lot, work for the guy next door, he's got a cool idea. and. <laughs> And, and it doesn't matter that the product that you worked on last kind of sucked <laughs> or it didn't go anywhere and didn't have market traction. I mean, you learn how to create an app or you learn, you know, what it takes to harness a heartbeat signal on some monitor or something like that, or, you know, how data is structured and then you turn it into something else. So when you are confronted with a problem, are you more likely to think outside the box build a better box or set the box on fire? I would say earlier on in my career, I was very much the person that would kind of quote, set the box on fire. Um, but, you know, as you kind of marinate in the stuff for a little bit, um, the reality is, I think it's really important to acknowledge the box and maybe even figure out why it's there and how it became the box. Um, because there's a lot of lessons there, right? I mean, it might be, you know, government-led external forces of, you know, for taxes or for whatever reason, right? And so, the, so to go on and blindly, you know, burn the box down, I actually think is kind of silly because you're losing data that you could have actually used to help you make a really amazing decision. When you're evaluating talent for your team, what do you believe is the most important characteristic or feature or skill set to their future success? 
I would say the number one thing that I always um, look for is, can I set um, this person up to win? Right? Not, here's what I'm looking for, and does this person kind of check those boxes per se, but can I set up this person to win? Right? Is, um, you really, really have to look at it from the other person's point of view and build from there and not necessarily say, this is what I need. I'm going to, you know, fit you into this mold. Right. Um, or else you're really just kind of sub-optimizing, you know, super smart people. Going back to the make friends and influence people. I think if you focus on that element, um, you're going to have a way more um, interesting um, interview <laughs> rather than, okay, tell me about the time that you sold or tell me about the time where you designed or, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. So is your personal decision bias to limit your downside or maximize your upside? Uh, so it's, you know, it's always been the maximize the upside, um, kind of a thing, but I can tell you this, um, my wife, is the exact opposite. <laughs> and I think that that's why we make such a great team. And I've been able to learn a lot about the, the limiting side and, and having that as like a, a counterbalance and a counterforce. Um, and so unbridled, um, you know, maximization, I think is, you know, just as, uh, as silly as, you know, unbridled conservatism. And so you got to find a way to kind of create that balance, even if you have to look externally. Before we wrap up, is there anything you'd want to talk about that you don't think we covered? Really wanted to kind of reemphasize, um, you know, the point about um, really kind of unbridled curiosity. And um, if there's any kind of a, um, a headline that I would probably want to have attached on my tombstone, you know, it would be that unbridled curiosity as opposed to, you know, failure, not failure, innovator, non-innovator, and all that other stuff. Um, I think um, if, you, if we could somehow kind of keep that going i think that that's a what keeps us young but also kind of what gives us really um you know that that big insight right and and then and then actually there was one point that i forgot to make earlier with regards to the make friends and influence people it it really is 10 times easier to get somebody to like you by you understanding who they are than trying to tell people how amazingly, how amazing you are, <laughs> right? It's a very boring conversation. <laughs> That's a great point. Well, Victor, I, I am just so thankful you did this. It has been really fun catching up. Um, you know, we really haven't seen each other in person in 30 years, but, uh, it's amazing to come from those early days at Marquette to uh, see how much life has brought us. And I don't think I could agree with you more that uh, the quest, the, the passion for curiosity is certainly a great guidepost uh, to keeping life interesting. So thank you so much for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks to Victor for joining me on Innovators on Tap and sharing his wisdom and insight, including the power of unbridled curiosity. If we can somehow keep that going, 
That's what gives us the big insight. We want to thank all of you who have embraced the show and helped us grow our audience so far, including our sponsor, Husco International. While we are all proud of our success, we're just getting started and hope that you will tell your friends about the show. We would also really appreciate it if you would take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Please note that we have additional resources available on our website at innovatorsontap.com, including transcripts, articles, and an option to sign up for the Innovation Alley newsletter. Thanks for joining us on this journey. Let's go change the world.